Welcome to Porsche Pattern with Bracken Helms, the show where we hear Bracken and his distinguished guests from the Porsche community patter on about Porsches and all things automotive. Porsche Patter is sponsored by Circuit 64. Circuit 64 creates authentic automotive apparel made for like-minded automotive enthusiasts. The links for Circuit 64 are in the show notes. Okay, let's get to it. John Benton, Part 1. It's always a good time talking with John Benton. I did it a few times before I actually recorded this, and I've done it a few times since. One of the things he said made me think, this would be a good question, because I've wanted to ask similar type questions. And then when he said this in about the eight minute mark, I don't know, it's somewhere in this interview, he mentions driving his cousin's 912 and how excited he was. And then he's like, oh, he also had a 69 911S tangerine orange. But then he talks about how at that age, when he probably was just driving what he thought was fun and not really knowledgeable about what was the best car or what people liked, he's loved the 912. And he was like, the the 911S was kind of a pain in the ass to drive. So that made me kind of think of a question like, how much are people influenced by what's supposed to be the cool car? He was all about that 912. Not he still is all about the 912, but he was all about the 912 and was kind of like, mm, 911S is okay. Or at least that was his impression at the time. Okay, so this was done on my older audio that I used to transcribe that wasn't as good, but it's listenable to me. I know some of you are audio junkies, and so I'm just giving you a heads up. Okay, let's get on. John Benton, part one. So... This is kind of two questions. Like, I want to know what Benton Performance is. So what is Benton Performance? But I also kind of want to know, who is John Benton? Well, John Benton, you know, he's a human being. Grew up here on planet Earth, California, mostly around L.A. Like a lot of young men, I, I love cars. And I was fairly inquisitive, even as a young young guy, taking stuff apart. And I remember getting a lot of trouble for taking a rotary phone apart. I was bored. And I'm like, how does this thing work? You know, I just same thing to a TV. I'm like, how in the hell does a signal come through the air and arrive at this machine? And you can see a picture. And I remember getting a ton of trouble for taking the back of the TV off. You know, it's like 80 screws and, and I almost had it apart, you know, and, and uh, my old man was like, you know, you could die. There's stuff in there that will electrocute you. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it just starts like that. I'm sure you have similar things that have occurred where you're like, how does that work? And you take it apart and like, wow, how does it go back to get it? <laughs> I've done a few of those over the years. Still do it. But uh, yeah, I grew up here in in, uh, in SoCal and um, in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not bluster. It's the truth. I mean, this is like the seat of car culture. This is kind of where everything radiated from, you yeah. know. I was right in the middle of all that stuff. And I was fortunate to have some cousins who were 10, 15 years older than me. So when I was a young pup, they would grab me up. You know, I could hang out with them. All the cousins had something interesting going on. But uh, I really, 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 really liked uh, hanging out in the air-cooled cars. Something about them. I really, really liked. I just was immersed in it. And, you know, we, there was, uh, the crew scene was strong. The drive-in scene was strong. Everything was in a car. I mean, you didn't. Yeah, you walk places, you did stuff, but, you know, car centricity was very real then. I mean, it was a big part of the social scene. I grew up in that. You know, I couldn't wait to get a car. 
I uh, got my first ticket when I was 14, joy riding, 64 Impala, yeah. Southgate. And I must have looked like I was 10. So when the motor patrolman pulled up next to me, that was his question. How old are you? And I told him old enough and he didn't like that. So the difference between then and now is that he said, where do you live? And I told him, he says, well, drive there. And he followed me. So I drove home, you know, I'm like four feet tall, and sitting on the edge of the seat. It's pretty, I can imagine what he saw now. He was, must have been mortified, but I think at the same time he's laughing inside. But, you know, I got an ass whooping and don't do that anymore. But I did that lots of times. There were lots of opportunities to grab a car. And then, you know, I I uh, was the kid in the neighborhood that was always like wheeling, dealing. I, you know, lots of people take what they have for granted. You know, they're just like, oh, whatever. It's an appliance, like a bicycle, car, motorcycle. Well, I wasn't in a financially wonderful place, but I could put things together. So, you know, if I saw a buddy or somebody or even a stranger if there was like a bike on the side of a house or something i would like knock 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 you want that bike no get it out of here so i would build bikes and trade them sell them you know and then i would have fun like you know you'd find like a a dead motorcycle and then like well i could put these shocks on my schwinn you know if i put a long axle i could do this and have like a springer back in you know it's like and just doing crap like that just goofing around and then meeting different people I just always gravitated towards people that were craftsmen. I grew up in a family full of union craftsmen. Um, I did a lot of electrical work as a kid, like an electrician. Like I was a, an accomplished electrician when I was in junior high. Um, I didn't know that, but I just knew that I could do all this stuff, you know. Yeah. Slave labor, you know. Time to get up. It's time to go to work. You know, I, I got a car as soon as I could. I was 15 and I painted a house so that I could get this car. Car was parked and I wanted the car. It's kind of like the bicycle scenario. You want that car? In this case, it was like, yeah, you can have that car paint my house. So I painted a house. I spent the whole goddamn summer painting this house to get this car. It was a pile of shit. It wasn't a fair trade. <laughs> but I got the car. That was my first car that was mine. I mean, I had a, a couple of cars that were kind of mine. The 64 Impala that I joyrided in, got my first ticket in, that was going to be my first car, you know, and I, I was driving it and I wasn't finished paying for it and it got boosted. Out of a BNA, a B of A parking lot over Hunter Park. And uh, that was a sad day, man. I love that car. It was a uh, metallic green, green interior, had baby Appleton spotlights. It's a low rider. It was, it was nice. Someone stole it? Oh, yeah. What do you mean B and A? What does that mean? B of A. Bank of America. Oh, okay. I was working at a dairy. I got my check. I went to the bank, deposited my check. And I came out, the car was gone. And I mean, just boom, like it disappeared. And uh, it got recovered over in Hollenbeck, over in East LA, but they had just stripped it to the bone. It was a, it was a nice car. It was just everything about it was bitching, but uh, I really liked Beatles and Squarebacks and all that stuff. I loved that Porsches. I had a cousin named Mike. He had, always had a Porsche, and he always had cool stuff like, but like cool buses. He was a surfer, cool dude. The first Porsche I ever drove was his. He had a '66. Bay 66912, and I would drive it. He would let me drive it. Yeah, go drive it. You know, I'd drive it around. It's easy to drive uh, compared to some of the crap I had. It's well-maintained. It's a good car. I took it to a, uh, a formal when I was in high school. It's like 16, 17. And, oh, my God. I just wanted to ditch the girl and go drive. You know, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, he had a 69911S. Tangerine oh, yeah. 69911S as well. And that car was fast but it was a pain in the ass to drive 
clutch felt really heavy. That could have just now that I know that I know what I do for a living, that was probably just a mistake on the part of the person who put the car together. It just probably needed a couple of washers behind the pivot on the throw out bearing arm, maybe some lube on the cable or new Bowden tube, but it was a heavy, heavy clutch pedal and you had to rev the tar out of it. It just didn't feel good. But the 912 was just zippy and fun, lightweight. Um, and that, that left a la- lasting imprint. But uh, I'm just a guy who always wanted to be around these cars. It's my happy place. You know, I had a professional life. I uh, always stayed in school and I always had a job. Parlayed what I knew about being an electrician into getting pretty lucrative jobs in manufacturing. My tendency to gravitate towards people who know what they're doing, and I'm kind of fascinated by that. I I just would find, oh, I like, man, that's cool. So, you know, I learned real early, you know, uh, I went to Cerritos College. I went to night school, and uh, I studied welding, metallurgy, mechanical drawing, machine shop. And then I took electives thinking I was going to continue my college, you know, beyond the JC, but that never happened. I, uh, I had, I had to work. You know, I, I left home when I was 16. So left home, I stayed in school. I studied, always had a job, always had a car. One of my cars always be fast. They weren't the prettiest things because I have a lot of money, but I would put everything I had into making the drivetrain solid, always a dreamer. So, um, basically I just kept dreaming. Now I'm here as a professional. I, towards the end of my tenure in the corporate world, I was a facilities engineer a lot of responsibility, decent pay, actually really good pay and crazy good benefits, living the life. But there's some disillusionment when you're a dreamer, romance-minded kind of guy like I am. I, The corporate world just was always like shattering people and discarding people, shedding them like old skin. And some of those people were really cool people that I admired. And then I kind of got thrown under the bus one day at a, at a staff meeting. And that was it. I looked Like for, they didn't fire you, but they were like, reprimanding you or what well i had a feeling like i was going to get let go or something was going to happen but i i was it wasn't on you it was uh you know i was uh it's kind of a long story but i i was up for a a huge promotion and the guy i was replacing had told me dude i've already talked to corporate you know you're the guy for this job the eggs were out of the basket hatched and fully grown and then uh didn't didn't materialize you know i i'm sitting at the meeting and someone that i didn't you know have a fairly high opinion of in, in the environment we were in got the position and that and some other things really really beat me down i felt like i'd been cast away and and i was dedicated to my task you know, i achieved a lot of really wonderful things i think they just wanted to keep me in my role the funny thing about like the corporate world and life in general you know there it definitely are stations in life depending on who you, who you know where you're from and your level of education etc cetera, etc cetera. and um and that's all good i mean it's it's contrast you know it, you, you aspire to maybe have one of these jobs someday, you know, and I certainly did. That was kind of like my chance because I didn't have a four-year degree. And this was a job where, you know, you, you kind of needed that, but I'd worked my way through the ranks my whole life. I had these bitching jobs, but it's because of my, my talents and my ability to interact with people. So I, it parlayed into something good. Then it just, boom, like that, it didn't materialize. And I really thought it was going to happen, but getting to that place and playing the game and have it kind of like be plucked out. It was painful. I mean, I was, I was really upset. And so when I couldn't get the answer I wanted from the VP, I just said, that's it. And I had an opportunity to delve into, um, automotive at that, you know, I had a little bit of money. I had my 401k. I just, I left. That was it. I'm done. And I opened up a little shop and I already had a shop at home. That's where it really started. I mean, I, I had a full shop. I mean, all the time I was working at these corporations, the good thing about having a job like the 
five day a week job is that you have the weekends fully open and your evenings, you're not totally shot out. So you have time. So I was at home building motors and doing stuff for people. And I was racing. I loved racing. I had a lot of toys, had a boat and a dually and all this stuff, you know? You know, I thought I'd been adulting the whole time, but I just had been on this cruise mode. I mean, there were challenges, but things just kind of happened for me, you know, for a kid that grew up kind of in a interesting environment with uh, things a little bit unhinged, you know, on a daily basis. I just rose through it and did my thing and, and had accomplished quite a bit. But I, I guess I wasn't adulting on some level. So when it came time to really, become, I, I guess for lack of a better, better term, I think I became self-aware. I think I became self-aware. Like I'm doing all this great stuff with these other people, which is fine. There's no, no, no sin in that at all. Um, in fact, had things worked out, I'd still be doing it. We would be, probably wouldn't have this conversation. But I became self-aware. And I'm like, you know what? If I do this, this, and that, maybe I can do this. Maybe. No guarantees, but there's no guarantees. So yeah. screw it. I'm going to do my own fucking thing. So at first I was at my house. I ramped up. It got out of control. You know, it's like seven cars at my house. I, I know the neighbors didn't appreciate it. And I don't want to have an FSR relationship with people I've lived to next to for a long time. And, and it's unprofessional. It's not fair to me or the client. I mean, there's rules, right? So at some point, you know, being a business kind of like adulting at a very high level. So I sold a lot of stuff. Boat disappeared. The, a lot of the toys disappeared. A lot of the infrastructure I already had. So I moved into a legitimate shop. The first shop was in Southgate. But uh, that was short-lived. The environment was nasty. I was worried about people stealing stuff. You know, it was kind of nasty. And uh, I had an opportunity to move to La Habra. So um, kind of out of the way, but really cool space. Went in there and just started ripping it, man. I was just going. And I just worked. I worked and worked and worked and worked. And I, I didn't want to leave. I mean, I, I was so poor, but so happy. And I was lucky that my wife was making enough money to kind of cover us. And I didn't bankrupt us, but I put everything I had back in the shop. And it just started ramping up, you know. And right as things were really starting to roll, the bank collapse in 08, late 08, almost killed me. It killed almost everybody in the complex. I was like the last man standing, with a few exceptions. So, you know, just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. La Habra stayed alive. I expanded it. And then like a gift from God, Porsche, the mark itself all of a sudden just ignited, you know, for me, it was always important, but all of a sudden there was a new generation of people. Um, social media was born on a high level around that time. And then by 2010, it just was insane with apps and different people like you blogging and writing. And then what happens is people like Magnus Walker, who's an enthusiast, you know, but with a story and an enthusiasm, a passion, you know, his rocket takes off, you know, he instantly overnight becomes an icon and starts spreading this gospel. And he's not the only one. There's other people all over the world that are kind of like in the same journey and a new generation of enthusiasts and a new breed of enthusiasts. Like, I remember having a conversation with a buddy of mine who deals in cars and he's like, I just got this guy who's liquidating his Ferraris to buy Porsches. This guy's you know, like 60 years old, has a huge fleet of Ferraris. But he drove his first, like, really well-sorted vintage 911, and he's gaga. Not that Ferraris are bad cars, but he experienced what it's like to get behind a wheel. And, and that happened on an epic level. And at first, I thought, well, this should be a fad. But it, it's definitely a strong trend. You know, the cat's out of the box. It's like uh, people are experiencing it. It's a great time machine, like so many others. I mean, you can get an old Alpha, an old Ferrari, an old anything, an old Volvo, for Christ's sake. 
get in it and if it's sorted and even if it's quirky or whatever, but you know, taking a road trip in an old car is fun. For me, taking a road trip in an old Porsche is epic. I've had Alphas and Lotus cars and haven't had a Ferrari. Worked on a few, but it's fun. It's a great time machine. So who I am is a guy who fell in love with cars and things. And I've been on this path. Um, it was linear for a long time. And then I took a left turn, man. Man, the last big hit when I moved from La Habra to Anaheim in 20, around 2012, everything I had. I mean everything except for my 912 that I've had since I was 23 in my first Porsche. I just got rid of everything that wasn't bolted down that I didn't need and totally destroyed my 401k to the bone and got one of my clients, for lack of a better term, is, uh, you know, he's a stellar client and he threw down heavy, paid forward on projects and I built this place. I don't know. I do not own this building. I wish I did because that's a life changer. My, my acumen in the corporate world, as far as how to navigate that world, was fairly well honed, but that's not the same as being a businessman. And I'll tell you right now, the definition of businessman has nothing to do with me. In, in uh, 2012, I really needed that acumen, and it wasn't present. Um, I ramped up in a big way, leveraged the shit out of myself, my family, my friends, relationships, everything. I, I just dove into this as hard as I ever have. If I did it over again, I would have done less beautification. I would have done less equipment acquisition and I would have bought this goddamn building. And not that I didn't try. I did try. It was under market. It was a distress sale. The guy that owned it was like, hey, dude, you come up with a half million out of the place. But try to get a loan. The, the odds are stacked against you. If, you. if you don't have Uncle Sugar, you know, or somebody like some trust fund just feeding you dough, it's hard. To People say, oh, I did this all on my own. I, Maybe that happens. I've, I kind of done, did it on my own, you know. I, I've always been willing to ask for help, so I got some. But getting legit help, like from a bank or a loan institution, that's something you can live with, that's so hard to do. Like the SBA is a fucking joke. There's thousands of me out there that feed family. You know, I'm feeding seven, eight families out of this place. It pays everybody's salaries, it pays the bills. And then Johnny gets a little tiny stipend. To live this dream and i'm cool with that you know I, so i'm not i'm not a millionaire by any means so but coming into this scene thinking you're going to be a millionaire that that's it's like every day some kid picks up a guitar it's like right. man i am going to be eddie van halen <laughs> there's only one eddie van halen you know and there's a, there's only one steve ray vaughn but don't give up the dream I mean, it could happen but what i'm saying is the dream is worth more than the money and and living a life that you've created is worth more than the money if it's sustainable you don't want to be like living the dream to the point where you're like some heroin addict and you're dragging your whole family down and you're pissing everyone off around you because, and I've been close to that where it's like, man, I got this bill, this bill, this bill, which one am I going to pay? Things right now are pretty chill in that respect. Early on, I didn't have a cushion. So it's like, oof. I'm, I try to prepare myself for the worst all the time, you know, and it's, it's crazy now because we get an influx of people now that didn't exist for me before because before it was always word of mouth and and friends of friends and I you know they bring you the car and it's le legit relationship you know they know I'm not gouging them and you know bring the car here this is not a flat rate shop it's this much per hour and this is what the parts cost I have a general markup for parts and services it's not huge so this new group of people a lot of them I really have to be careful because most people I dealt with over the years were enthusiasts. Right. And they, they had the, the car for a long, long time, or they're familiar with older cars. So there wasn't too much 
gray, pretty black and white. Hey, John, how's it going? Oh, yeah. Yeah, bring the car over. The last, like, five years, six years, there's a new group of people that are coming down the pipe, and they've never had a sports car in their life, or some Jaguar, or Range Rover, whatever the hell they're driving, or a new Porsche, maybe. And now they want a vintage Porsche, which is great. You know, I'm counting on that, right? Some of these people, they come from a world where it's so dog-eat-dog. They live in a world where everything has to be I's dotted, T's crossed, contract, you know, and they're, they're like, you know, down to the fucking penny, you know, well, you know, we had an agreement. This was going to be this. And, and so they go DEFCON five, man. I mean, they're, they think they're being slighted. They like lose their shit. And, and I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> now I am, but I wasn't prepared for that early on. Cause I didn't, I didn't think that existed in our culture. It wouldn't occur to me before you said this, and I. Oh no, they'll they'll try to gut you because what happens is they're they're almost like projecting their awful life on this wonderful life. I want to talk to them, you know. I, well, I always have been that way. Yeah, I'll talk your goddamn head off. <laughs> I when I was by myself, there were days I couldn't get anything done. People come in, start chatting, well, let's grab a beer, whatever. Next thing you know, the day's gone. You got three engines on stand. You got to finish. Oh God, I guess I'm working late. So you know. It's sad that you have to do that, but I mean, I don't want to create some weird, mysterious thing where I'm an asshole, but the thing is, this is my box. This is my box. This is a culture-driven shop. We work on vintage Porsche for the most part. We might work on some other shit if it's cool. I, I, if I dig it, it's coming in. It, just, it doesn't have to be a Porsche, but our primary wheelhouse being 49 to 89 air-cooled Porsche, I love it. And I built this box for people, all my, the people that are out there working right now, they're super fucking cool. They're this is a family that I built. You, you call it hiring. This is a, a thing where people come to me and we talk. I'm like, all right, if you want to be part of the family, come on in. Understand, this is a gang. It's my fucking gang. You know, and if people fuck with us, it's not good. So you got to be, that's the mentality. This is our fucking gang. It's a Benton gang. We're here to kick ass, build bitching shit for people who get it. So that travels through everything. And I, I want things to be as good as we can make it. I'm not going to say everything that comes out here is perfect because there's certain things. I mean, if we can't get just the right part or if the person has a budget and we get to this point where we can't like, we're going to have to eat it like an elephant or this is the first bite, bring it back again and we'll get the next bite in and so on and so forth. So a lot of these, a lot of these cars, you know, it's, it's like I said, the, the shop's culture driven, it's passion driven. As of late, you know, I've had a couple of new hires. I've had a couple who move on. I always make it clear to the guys in the shop, especially now the new hires, I asked them the same question, you know, what do you think our number one job is here? Like, oh, and they'll say to work on cars or, you know, get get stuff out. I'm like, well, that's definitely part of the job, but that's not our main concern. At this place, this shop, our main job is to take care of each other. This isn't a, a competition fest to see who can weld the fastest or, or build it the fastest or, uh, look, I did this better than you. This is not that place. If you're that kind of person... You're not going to survive here. You're going to go crazy, you know, because if, if that's your main drive is to compete, save that for the track, save that for picking up chicks or whatever with your buddies. This is a place where, you know, that can't exist because if we take care of each other, everything else just happens. If, if you live in judgment 24 seven and you bring that shit into my culture, I, I, I can't abide by that. You know, you got to remember, I came from a corporate culture, you know, I'm, I went from being a, still in, still in high school, 
working in a corporate environment, just working way up through the chain and then taking training, you know, management training, like what you're talking about. So your number one guy that you think the whole world depends on, he's replaceable. And I would rail against that, you know, like bullshit. There's some people that are badasses. Yeah. And when they're not there, things do not work right. But in a corporate environment, you can't think that way. And it used to bug the shit out of me. They're not going to take the time to truly like invest in someone that is an ass kicker and is having a tough time. Here, if I got a, if somebody's here is having a hard time, I will slow down to a crawl and say, what do you need? What do you need? And if I have to sit out here for three hours, end of shift, and talk to one of those guys, but I tell people all the time, no matter what you need, no matter what it is, something you know you gotta you gotta have, call me and we'll talk and I'll explain to you how you can live without it. And it's true. Little techniques like that, because I've had a, that somebody I dearly love told me that many, many years ago when I was a younger guy. And it, it sticks in my head. But you know, having people in your life like that is really important. They don't have to be your dad or your mom. They could be some dude sitting at the bar, they could be some guy you meet on a bus. When times are, you know, kind of gnawing at you, you know, pick up the phone or just make yourself available. Don't don't go don't go to the island or sit in the dark space. Don't get yeah. stoned out of your mind. It's a waste of time. Just, you know, reach out and have some conversations and look in the mirror. Because everybody here, that's another technique. I t- always tell myself, don't judge. You're looking in a mirror. You know, that person is was born. They're going to get sick. They're going to have good days, bad days. They're going to die. All these things. These are all commonalities. I've had clients come in here and you can tell they're having a really bad day. So you just let them do their thing. Same with the employees. And I ask that they do the same for me because I've had bad days. You know, I'm like, God, damn, I get really upset. Uh, I'm not infallible. And I, I have many times lost my cool, which I don't like to do. But you can bet your ass that after doing that, I will go to each and every individual that was affected by that action. Explain to them why. And apologize because um, you can't leave like shit like that unfinished. You think, you know, you threw you, you have to finish that stuff. You can't internalize it. You chill out. I'm trying to create an environment. I really, really like in almost all situations. Um, I'm not egomaniacal and forcing my shit, but in this box, I can do that. You know, it's like, this is my shit. And this is how I want it. Doesn't have to be perfect, but this is where I'm at. And I'm just working through it, man. Like everybody else. It's just, this is my life. Like everybody else has a life every day. I'm still learning stuff and figuring stuff out. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, comment, like, and share with your friends. Feel free to send questions or suggestions to the email in the description of the show. Special thanks to our sponsor circuit six, four goodbye for now. We hope we can get together again for our next episode. Now get out there and enjoy the cars and the people.